Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing projects experimenting in safety beyond prisons and police. Welcome, I am Damon. This is a special episode with my co-host Eva. What's up, Eva? Hey, Dame. How's it going? It is going well. I am very excited and it feels special. It feels new. It feels unique. It feels like we got new new ingredients, <laughs> new beakers, new thermometers, you know? <laughs> What's the thing that's like a big old beaker? It's like the graduated cylinder. Wow. There it is, stirring it up in a graduated cylinder. <laughs> but Eva, we, we went up to a, a region of the United States we have not touched yet up in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Can you tell the folks a little bit about who we had? Yes, we were so excited to welcome frequent interrupting criminalization co-conspirator J.M. Wong from Seattle, Washington. Um, J.M. brought their frequent co-collaborators, Cassandra Butler of Free Them All Washington and Shushen Zhou from the Massage Parlor Outreach Project. The Massage Parlor Outreach Project, or MPOP, organizes to build worker power through organizing and leadership to provide support for migrant Asian massage parlor workers, sex workers, and care workers in the greater Seattle area. And then Free Them All Washington is a collective of people committed to the abolition of the criminal punishment system in Washington. Free Them All began as a subset of the COVID-19 Mutual Aid Project in Seattle. And then we kind of dive in with JM2 about their work with the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Awareness Group, or APICAG. APICAG is part of a collective cultural coalition that currently resides at Stafford Creek Correction Center. It's a collaborator palooza. We, we... It is a collaborator palooza. <laughs> Speaking of collaborators, we also have from the home team. What's up, Kiss? You here with us? Oh, you know I'm here. Yeah. So we we changed things around a little bit. I was on vacation when this episode was recorded, um, and so I was very glad to have the two of y'all take the lead on this conversation. And I got to uh, pretend to be the one and only Eva and, and listen in. And I'm excited to share what I heard when we get to the peer review. We go into a lot of language and terms in this episode, some of which, you know, is evolving as we do this work. And one of those terms is API or Asian Pacific Islander. JM, um, you know, thoughtfully brought this into conversation before and after our talk, but we just wanted to make a quick note about the acronym API that's used for APICAG. JM and their collaborators have had a lot of conversations about moving away from that category because of how it perpetuates the invisibilization of Pacific Islander folks. But they retain APICAG in the name because this name resonates with the people that they're working and organizing with inside at Stafford Creek Correction. And it really is a space for those who identify as Asian and Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And so they have found that useful in their organizing. And so that's the term that we're using here. And now with that, let's hop in the lab for this special roundtable edition of 1ME with J.M. Wong. Cassandra of Free Them All, Washington, and Shu Shen of MPOP. All right, we're doing it. We are back in the lab. We are here with One Million Experiments, and I am so excited. We have a special, like, roundtable edition, more or less, of One Million Experiments here. We got a bunch of a bunch of collaborators in the lab. Eva, what's up? You are here. We are doing it. Who we got with us? 
Hey, Damon. So good to be part of the main event today. (laughs) Sound effects added afterwards. You guys are going to get all the good sound effects. Don't worry. Um, Today in the studio, we have Chusen from the Massage Parlor Outreach Project. We're bringing JM, who, I mean, just Google JM Wong and you will see all of their body of work on the internet. Um, But we're going to focus a little bit on what's been going on with mutual aid with Cassandra, with Free Them All, and the COVID-19 Mutual Aid Project, which JM has worked on as well. And JM is going to bring a little bit of insight too about their work, specifically doing inside-outside organizing with API CAG family. So we have a tradition here that grounds us in the conversation, and we could take it as like a little buffet that we could all pick at. But it's a two-part question centered around time and define time how you will. So that can be this day, this hour, this lifetime, this season. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? I can go. So today is my child's first day in kindergarten. Congratulations. (laughs) And they have been very nervous and also excited about today. And me too. I think the time witnessing and also feeling my kids' strong feelings how they express it in an apologetic way. For me, it's always like beautiful moments. I feel like connected with the world. So I would say, you know, at this moment, the world has been treating me well. Until they come home from school. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Cassandra, how is the world treating you today? I, I mean, I would say today it's good. I feel like when I think about time these days, I think about it in COVID and non-COVID time. I don't know. It just feels like a Groundhog Day kind of situation, but the world, I must have been putting out some real good energy because the world gave me great things over the last couple of years. Even though we were in a pandemic, I had a grandchild born. My daughter got married. I got another grandbaby on the way. My husband was released from prison. I got married, all the stuff. So I feel like Today is great. Every day for a while has been pretty great. Jam's going to come in and be like, I'm having a terrible day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm always emo and dramatic. So (laughs) right on. Um, The world is treating me with sunshine, as you can see. And yeah, Seattle is really beautiful in the summers. Also with reminders of death and loss <laughs> um, because that happens in these in this era so yeah I think I'm I, I'm reminded of just how precious life is and to give gratitude for what we do have um, and living and loving in that manner you know I brought you all to the table because your work is so interconnected in location and experience um, and what you have all have gone through like together and separately over these past couple of years. Maybe we can start with you, Shushan. Um, MPOP is an organization that started in 2018 and has been around for a minute before the pandemic. Um, what brought you to the work? You know, What needs were you seeing in your community that you wanted to address? What is the world that MPOP is trying to build with the work that you do. You know, I think that the all of the work that we are talking today is, is about taking care of each other. So how does MPOP take care of each other? Well, it's a big question. And I think for me, coming to the work of MPOP, one part of it is um, I want to find a community for myself. I want to find a community that has a vision of thinking about how we can live outside the state-sanctioned violence and capitalism. 
it has been lonely to live in the U.S. as an adult migrant. And then I came in from a working class family in China. So when I came here and started thinking about, you know, how I can organize with working class here in the U.S. and then Chinese migrants become a natural community that I want to plug myself in. And, you know, before I started talking about how MPOP's vision of taking care of each other, I feel like when I am in MPOP, I feel I have been taken care of just by in proximity with other organizers. And we have such a loving and caring team. MPOP is like the best team. And also the workers who are a lot of them in the age of my, actually my auntie or my mom's generation. And so they will treating me with dumplings. So that's kind of a relationship. It's the one I feel I've been taking care of in MPOP community. And then circle back to MPOP's mission. Um, one part of it is thinking about, you know, Asian migrant massage workers and sex workers, they're actually taking care of the community, right? They're doing care work and they're taking care of people's body and mind. But unfortunately, a lot of times they are not taken care of by, uh, for example, they are not considered as healthcare workers. So during COVID, they are not the first to get all the COVID support. And then a lot of times the Asian communities who see respectability politics as a major strategy in organizing often throw massage and sex workers under the bus. Um, so that's one way of for MPOP to think about, you know, we want to take care of each other, everybody in the community, including people who provide care for others. Um, so supporting massage workers is one way of me contributing to a lot of movements out there trying to take care of each other. Jam, do you, could you talk a little bit like how you came to the work since I, you know, I'd love to hear about kind of how you all have taken care of each other in this work, how, how you came and, and if there's any if there's any differences there and what brought you to MPOP? Yeah, so um, my mom is a masseuse um, back home. Was was a masseuse. She's kind of old right now. But she used to be. And so a lot of my childhood memories was growing up in a beauty salon slash massage parlor when I was a teenager. You know, it's a different country. My family's in Malaysia, Singapore. And um, coming to the U.S., I think, as an Asian migrant, with a lot of privileges, came with a scholarship to go to a fancy school. And then I stayed after. Um, I think the question of how do you find home as a guest on Toto Island and honor the legacy history of racial violence and joy and resilience here on these lands as an Asian person and not feed into all the bullshit, you know, that our communities have been fed internationally. I think that has been a big drive for me in search of queer working class resistance and connections globally, right? And the work with MPOP really came about. One of my jobs, my paid job, is I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse at a hospital and I was doing occupational health work, so worker health um, stuff. And I was tapped into worker organizing back in China where there has been a major crackdown on labor organizing in China for in the last few years. But before that, there were really thriving labor organizing work that I mean, we can't talk about openly because of state repression. But yeah, there was just thriving, really powerful um, belly of the beast organizing 
um, led by workers, you know, in American European companies, speaking of Apple, you know, a lot of these major tech companies that profit and extract labor from Asia. And just learning about the way they organize and thinking, you know, why is the story of, in this case, Chinese migration to the U.S. shaped by rich, wealthy Chinese men? Like that is, I'm not denying that's a part of the story, but that's not the only story, right? And thinking of massage workers, what is the story of Chinese American history if we track the experiences of workers who were part of the Cultural Revolution, part of these huge, speaking of experiments, these were huge experiments on a global scale with a lot to lose, and people were part of that. And obviously, different people have different experiences out of that, and the verdict depends on where you stay in history. I'll come up with different verdicts on that. But people lost their jobs when China opened their doors to neoliberalism, capitalism, and then moved south to work in factories and then came and worked in massage parlors. Where is that story in our legacy? Where is Why do we not lift up the lives and struggles of ordinary Asian people, right? Why is it that we are all tainted with this model minority myth, which I think a is low-key, and I know this might get me burned, but it's low-key a really boring story. Like, <laughs> it's boring. It doesn't tell the whole story of the community. And it's a really state-driven, top-down narrative of the diversity and breadth of experiences, right? I mean, I can ramble on and on about this, but there's so much to say on how much that was, you know, international foreign policy tool used during an uh, anti-communist period in the U.S. and broadcast it internationally that like, hey, come here and you will, you know, have a place in the racial hierarchy as long as you buy into anti-Blackness and, you know, all the bullshit that white supremacy has to offer. And that was the propaganda, right? And people bought into it. And I'm acutely aware of that, but that doesn't tell the entire picture. That doesn't give the entire picture. So, you know, in 2018, I was interning for a group called API Chaya. This was an anti-violence organization based in Chinatown International District in Seattle. And it was in preparation of raids that were going to happen in in the area of massage parlors. And so I think API Chaya was was dope. And they, you know, hired me on to do outreach with massage parlor workers because majority of the workers are um, Chinese speaking. So the project started then and then, you know, we formed our own thing after the internship ended and to think about how do we support Asian migrant massage workers, sex workers coming from, you know, an occupational health perspective, which sounds boring, but really it's, you know, thinking about health holistically, right? And thinking of work as an important component of health, because oftentimes, this is my other rant on public health, is that work is being compartmentalized and separated from our ideas of health. And then, you know, meeting folks, Sushan and I have a relationship from before, um, and meeting other Asian Americans and specifically folks who spoke Chinese to do outreach and connect with the workers. And it's been really powerful to have a space to connect with these Chinese aunties um, and uncles. And, you know, I think there's a cultural thing with, it sounds terrible, but the way we communicate love and relationship is not always very sweet and kind and gentle. <laughs> but food is always present. So that's, um, yeah. And Sushan was a big part of making sure folks were vaccinated at a time when none of, you know, a lot of public health efforts did not 
really think about who are. I mean, I guess this is a separate thing too, just how so much of the relationship to communities mediated through nonprofits, right? Sanctioned by the city, they're sanctioned by the institution. You know, they may have certain connections to certain groups of people, but really like when you unleash like the creative power relationship energy of regular people who love each other, like that's way deeper than what any um, institutional nonprofit can do. So I feel like that's how MPOP was able to do like vaccine outreach. We have, we're having conversations about safety, to think about alternatives to 911, but talking about race and US, which is not what we study when we take the citizenship test. They don't tell you about native genocide and black slavery. It's slow, but I feel like we have a really powerful team to work with. One of the things that we're trying to do with One Million Experiments is really, you know, talk about some of the the big picture ideas of like how we get this work done, but sort of the nitty gritty stuff too. And your talk, Shushan, about joy, your talk, um, JM, about coming home. I'm wondering if you can like share what is the magic that you have created with MPOP that generates that feeling of home and joy for your members? I know that my work with CCWP, I don't know what the recipe is yet, but that's why we keep coming back. It's potlucks, it's um, meal trains, it's having aunties and being an auntie. And I'm just wondering if you all can help me articulate how MPOP does it, because I'm really not sure how we do it, but I feel like it's this recipe that I really want you know the world to share. And I think that especially when you're talking about inside-outside relationships, or you're talking about populations that are so highly criminalized on a day-to-day basis where people are really, really fighting tooth and nail day-to-day, like how we can go into such heavy work with such joy and lightness sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if we have a fixed recipe. You know, like when I learn cooking from my family, a lot of time we just keep trying different things. <laughs> Um, so I think that's how MPOP has been doing, really being very creative. We tried a lot of different things, you know, like hot pot or giving out gifts, um, candies, fruit and homemade stuff or self-defense training in which a worker spent 30 minutes arguing with us saying this is useless. Right. So many, so many, so many times like, uh, OK, this did not work. But even after that, you know, the embarrassed moments were like, that was cute and we can love it now after, afterwards. Um, I think just the mentality of keep trying different things and trying to figure out, you know, what what is the thing that um, the workers also find valuable and the organizers also feel like is fit with our mission. And I have to say the time might be the recipe you know, when it started in 2018 and when I joined 2019, there were a lot of times when we knocked the door of massage parlors and the workers were like, sorry, I'm busy. I don't want to talk to you. I don't know why you're here. And then, you know, during COVID, doing direct support of finding, we had to get testing, we had to get vaccine and then masks and just share some sort of information in our WeChat group. Um, to later doing more training, like kind of activity with dim sum. And obviously everybody loves the dim sum. Obviously. To, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and and then, <laughs> to at this moment, the workers will say, you know, you just need to have a space and we will make dumplings. We can all eat together. So the time and also the commitment to build a relationship 
I thought like that's the recipe that um, I don't know if it, I still don't know if it worked or <laughs> we're just staying hopeful. Yeah, I can chime in here. I think um, there are two quotes that come up t- for me. One is attention is the beginning of devotion, you know, and I think in MPOP, there is a lot of attention that's placed even in the small things of how, you know, like this dim sum breakfast packet, like it's really cute and it conveys a love. And then the other quote that stands out for me is I think it's a Khalil Gibran quote and it's work is love made visible. And how do we show our love in that work? Yeah, we are responding in moments of intense grief. And, you know, in MPOP, we had the visual right after the shootings that was such a powerful expression of community. And then in Freedom Mall, we've also had like, we, we did some kind of healing conversations in the beginning when we were first encountering just like the intensity of the pandemic for our loved ones inside, just to have spaces where you can release and acknowledge that grief and have that be transformed into other feelings that come up and to have people who care about each other enough to want to sustain that joy and want to sustain that small moments of like uplift, right? There's creativity and then showing up for one another, but not being afraid of the heaviness. So not that toxic positivity (laughs) kind (laughs) of joy, but a joy that's like, yeah, this is the ebb and flow of, of the work and life. You, you referenced Free the Mall, and I want to bring Cassandra into the conversation. Um, we dance around in this show, Woman in Experiments, uh, clunky science class metaphors. And one of them is the hypothesis, you know, the notion of when the experiment started or when the project started to free them all, what was it in response to and kind of what was the hypothesis or the projection of what was to come of that work. And then we can kind of work backwards from there of, you know, where the results have led us. I think what really sparked it is when COVID hit, we didn't know. Nobody knew anything. We didn't know out here. What we do know is that medical care inside of the Department of Corrections is treacherous pre-COVID. They don't care for Um, the human beings that are in their care. Um, And so when we out here were afraid for our lives and we didn't have answers, then we knew that the fear must have been way worse. And and especially for folks who have loved ones inside, it was like communication was slowly cut off. You know, it went from like, all right, we're going to pull back programming and then we're going to pull back visitation. And then it's just like facility-wide shutdown in a way where folks are not being able to access phones as often. So not only did we not know and they didn't know, but we couldn't communicate. That was really initially how Free Them All came together was just like the only way to prevent so many people from dying inside is to let people out. Mm-hmm. Social distancing, not real life in prison. We know they're stacking human beings inside of prisons you know, social distancing from each other, but also from the staff, like that was not real access to masks and hand sanitizer. Those things were also not real. I mean, our loved ones were making masks out of coffee folders. Mm. That's what they were using for masks and hand sanitizer was not being given out because it has alcohol in it. You know, the things that they were telling us out here are like life-saving measures. They had no interest in providing. It was just like, let's just lock them all in their cells, shut down 
you know, the compound and not let anyone move around and cross our fingers. That didn't work. And so the push to free them all was like, let them out, let them come home, let them be in the care of their families, let them have access to the same care that we all have access to in this world stopping pandemic where people are dying. Majority of folks that are inside of prisons are not sentenced to death. But COVID is essentially a death sentence if you catch it inside. That was the premise initially. A lot of our actions were trying to get folks to listen and to just decrease the prison population as soon as we could. And things have transformed over the last couple of years. And so, you know, the governor, I think they let out 1,100 people to show that they were trying to decrease the prison population. That doesn't even touch the prison population. Most of the folks that they let out were steps away from coming out anyway. So it wasn't, they didn't do anybody any favors. They didn't, you know, transform or save any lives. And then the narrative they build in is like when they let those folks out, when one, you know, if one person ends up back in and like, oh, look, we can't let people out because they're going to commit crime and come back. And so that narrative is what they use to stop letting people out. On top of COVID, what we all saw was a world on fire, right? George Floyd happened and it changed the face of how things were happening in like legislature and around sentencing reform over here. So at the same time, we were saying free them for health concerns. Some folks were starting to hear like racism is real. The combination of all of the things that were going on really created a space where free them all then was, you know, continuing to push, like let folks come home, let folks come home for health reasons, but also let folks come home because you've unjustly incarcerated hundreds of thousands of people across this country. The reckoning is happening. It's time to let people go. Now that, that really resonates. And, you know, I think the conditions were parallel in many of our like, you know, populace of in this land. And so, you know, I have deep recollection of, you know, when, when we were first beginning to understand the pandemic, a multi-thousand car caravan around the Cook County jail that we have here in Chicago. And just like that initial energy seeing one, it reconnected and remobilized a lot of folks that were already participating and supporting and advocating for decarceral strategies to get folks out. And then there was this like moment, I don't know how we can parallel. There was this moment of it is in even the like the state's interest to release folks from from this carceral violence. Uh, and there was like some some play with it at first. Uh, and then especially as uprising began, then immediately uh, this reversal and this counterattack of you know, it is not the safety of the people in there we need to be concerned of um, letting out anybody that has been, you know, branded with the mark of the state is then inherently dangerous to everyone else. And then this this push that even like it's it's amazing how <laughs> how they um, seem to be so air quote evidence based on their things, but they like uh, subvert any of the logics of how like real evidence works. So I it, it, it parallels to when uh, the FBI back in late 2014, 2015 had this Ferguson effect thing that they were naming of now that people are demonstrating against police violence, police are afraid to do their job and now crime is up. But like the air quote crime stats haven't even been produced yet. So they were just like talking out their ass. Um, and so similarly, this notion of 
we haven't even had enough time to see the effect of how letting folks out can one reconnect to families or what does it do or what resources do we actually need to build to support folks returning. There was just this immediate claim that this is dangerous. And then almost like this reversal, especially from like the air quote liberal corners. Uh, And so, yeah, even though I'm not in Seattle, like the story you were telling, I'm just seeing Chicago streets, uh, which one is just a lesson because my purview doesn't really go that far Northwest. Like there's so many threads that have been touched on that I can have some like historical reference to, but like my imagination is limited just like geographically. I think also the way the like the racialized dynamics work in your space and hearing these migrant stories and hearing this international relationship to state repression as someone who comes from, you know, a very, you know, there's a lot of conversation of black and brown solidarity in my spaces and in the spaces that I'm familiar with and the way in which I think, you know, Asian community is marginalized, erased, not seen as one one last air quote, statistically significant uh, in the conversation. And so I guess I'll I'll throw it back to y'all of what are the solidarities that exist in this Seattle space between these different communities that folks from outside of it, and I consider myself an outsider in this context, would be ignorant to or would not have a lot of legibility of around. JM, that smile is is talking to me. You got You got to come on in, jump in the water. <laughs> um, that's so much. Um, I would say one one moment that was really deep for me. Speaking of M pop, is when we did the visual to have Black, queer, and trans sex workers, folks from missing, murdered Indigenous people, speak in solidarity with the massage workers who were killed. Yeah, so much of solidarity is resisting also established narratives, right? I think when we had the whole like anti-Asian hate moment, I mean, I'm not discounting the fact that that was anti-Asian violence. I think what I was sitting with a lot was the exceptionalization of that violence. This is the welcome to America moment, right? Of whatever you thought was the golden mountain of the U.S. is actually a land of racial violence. And to have, um, you know, Black and Indigenous sex workers who experience this form of sexual racialized violence be like, yeah, like what's happening to you is not new and we want to protect you too. I think that was a very different narrative from like the mainstream liberal Asian narrative of this is happening to us. How is this possible? The irony with a lot of those voices is they also hate it on Asian migrant sex workers and massage parlor workers, but would capitalize and benefit from the trauma and tragedy that they experience. And Sushin hears this a lot, but I'm filled with rage and contempt for those forces and organizations. And so to have a moment of that solidarity during the visual and for the workers that we connect with to see that. I think was really important. And I think for me as an immigrant, you know, I can speak English and a lot of my community can't. And to the extent that you don't speak the same language, you don't have access to the history and people and communities of this land. You know, people didn't have access or relationships with Black trans women who do sex work, who face similar kinds of violence. And to have a moment where that connection could be made, you know, a a starting point for that, it gives me some direction of how I want to keep doing the work. 
and Cassandra Sushan can speak more to this. Um, but I think with Freedom All, the other part, speaking on solidarity, is I'm really like inspired by the relationships of all of ones inside and how they organize across race. Yeah, we get a lot of direction from folks inside on how to move, you know, with the mutual aid work, with the organizing and can you say what that direction looks like? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I'm 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 curious what what some examples of that. Yeah, of just you know really seeing the struggles of each racial group as deeply connected, right? I think so much of DOC and you know the broader state and institution is to do the divide and conquer. You know, I've never been incarcerated, um, and I can only imagine the way it plays out in there, right? But the direction we get from folks inside is we are a collective and we have to unite to push back on these policies that impact all of us. And there are meaningful collaborations between different racial groups in there, the APICAG, the Black Prisoner Caucus, and Nuestro Grupo Cultural, which is the Latinx group, the Native Circle. Like there's, they're always like, this is us and don't pick one apart from the other. I think we take a lot of direction from that in, in Freedom All's work. I do think like solidarity, it's a kind of tough conversation in MPOP, right? And um, when we think about the Asian migrant workers and to talk about cross-racial solidarity with them, considering a lot of them come to this country, do not speak English, and then the Chinese language media targeting migrants, first-generation migrants are often filled with misinformation that is filled with anti-Blackness, anti-poor, anti-homeless. And when massage workers stay in their parlors almost 24 hours, seven days, and um, kept being fed with this kind of information, we have a lot of kind of tough conversation with them on 101, arguing about this kind of stuff. Um, but I also think that in reality, when we think about solidarity for the purpose of abolition, uh, the workers don't call police because they are also criminalized or they don't have language access and they've been treated badly by the police. And when they have situation that they are strangers or clients in their parlor staying there, refuse to leave or ask for money, they will call and pop. Like they will call me and other volunteers who can speak both languages for, for translation or just for show up. A lot of times they just want a body to show up. And this is not solidarity with consciousness, but the act of not calling police and then asking for community member to show up, for me, it's an action in solidarity. You know, that's what so much of One Million Experiments is talking about is how do we create those opportunities, those pathways, those stepping stones to a world where we are giving collective care. And so that smells like solidarity mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> I think that this comes up a lot in talking in labor organizing and in talking about solidarity with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. So many of our actions you know, to me as an abolitionist, our abolitionist actions, right? This refusal to call the police, this growing of community to think of alternatives of these ecosystems of collective care. And that's not to put my ideology and paste that onto anyone else, but it's just to say like, as an abolitionist, that's so hopeful because so many people are finding that path 
towards collective care in a way and divesting from police and divesting from prisons out of necessity. You know, there's so many different layers of solidarity there. Also just a really hopeful thing to see that we can, you know, get to the same page in a lot of different ways. And so, Cassandra, I'm going to come back to you now. I think there is this moment of pandemic and people being really provoked and being really concerned. And then I think there's also then been this false consciousness that we are in a post-COVID moment or a lot of that like emergency rapid response energy, at least in the context I'm aware of, have like subsided a little bit back down to the mean. And so I'm curious now how the formation has shifted, grown, expanded, and particularly were there connections that were made over this, I think you call it like, you know, this groundhog time of pandemic (laughs) that has changed, you know, where the conversation is moving forward with our like pandemic realities that weren't happening or weren't primarily part of the discourse, like leading in to that provocation. I think that the way that things have shifted is just now we're a little more healing focused. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not post-COVID. I mean, at least in Washington state, prisons are re-shut down again because we've got a COVID outbreak and a TB outbreak. And in one specific prison out here, multiple folks have died in the last year for different, you know, medical related things. And, And so the same suffering that was happening before COVID was a thing is continuing now and is amplified. The thing is, is that we're all suffering differently now, right? We're not physically focused on suffering, but we're, we're emotionally and mentally all exhausted. Everybody's exhausted inside, outside, we're all exhausted. And so I think at least for me with Freedom All and with organizing work, the shift has been to a healing space. Like how can we now show up for each other? How can we show up for each other's families? Because the suffering from inside out is, I mean, it's playing out with, you know, your parents, your siblings, your children, your, everybody is, is suffering. And a lot of folks are suffering in silence, you know, connected directly to incarceration. What people didn't anticipate is what JM was mentioning in the solidarity of folks inside is like the folks inside are powerful. They were powerful before COVID, before a racial reckoning was acknowledged. They were powerful. They communicate, they talk, they work as a collective. And we take instruction from them on how to move forward. I mean, it's the genius, the emotion, the love that they move with that continues to steer us now. How can we show up for healing for them? they're hyper-focused on, on their families and their children and, and how can we show up in community for healing for their families? So that's what I would say. We're landing on healing now. And it's a long, it's a long road because we're still in COVID things are still being shut down. So healing is, is now till who knows when yeah. I, until I want, prisons are burnt down. How about that? Yeah, I want to, I want to like mine, uh, a lesson or maybe a particular tactic approach to something you said. I want to go back to this notion and it ties into something that the JM said of like taking instruction. And so less about like what the instructions were or the specific like ways those played out. But for folks who are listening, we actually have not gone deep enough talking about carceral violence of centering incarcerated people in communities and populations. We a lot of the experiments have been about the community and care work on the outside and you know how do we subvert 
our reliance on policing. But when we talk about abolition, we have to note that one, the origin of abolitionist thought started with incarcerated knowledge. And the prison was the original site that then I think gave us the language to then be able to see police violence more clearly and more explicitly. I think there are a lot of folks that can maybe be learning about their privileged position and eager to participate in solidarity work with incarcerated folks um, and maybe even think that they're taking instruction. But what are some tactics you've learned or disciplines or even ways to like self-check, especially since this is you know, directly affected your family of how people who are ideologically aligned with supporting incarcerated people actually in practice show up in the way that is led by the survivors of this violence? I mean, I think we're still learning. The biggest lesson that I took and maybe Free Them All took is that we don't have an answer on what that was like or, or how that works. And the answer we thought we had you know, the way we thought we were showing up and always repping exactly what they wanted was proved wrong mm. in a time when communication was cut off. And Can, do you feel comfortable sharing how so? How, like, let, this got to goes back to hypothesis, like what you thought it was. And then what was the what was the challenge that unpacked that for you? I think the biggest lesson and I'll speak for myself and, and what I saw in Free Them All is As a person who's been supporting somebody inside for the better part of almost two decades now, my brother's been inside. I would tell you pre-COVID, before we were really diving into, you know, hitting the streets, I could speak for my brother. If you asked me a question, I would be like, yeah, this is what he wants. And this is what the collective he's working with wants. Because I talk to him every day and, and I am deeply involved in the organizing work that he's doing. And I'm deeply connected to you know, other folks inside. And, and so I could say with confidence, like, yeah, let's push forward. Let's do this. And there was always a checkpoint. Like there was, I knew my brother was going to call every day. So I could always say like, this is what I think you would want me to say. Let me check in real quick. Well, when the call stop Mm. or the JPay messages aren't getting through Mm. and you don't have a checkpoint and the world is literally on fire and you need to make a decision how do you make a decision? You don't have your checkpoint. You don't have a way to confirm that what you think you know to be true is true. So you make your best guess, or you collectively talk to other folks impacted out here who have loved ones inside who are doing the work, and you all collectively make your best guess. And it's not always right. And so I think we learned that like instruction always has to come from inside. Even if that means that we have to slow down our process out here, instruction Mm. always has to come from inside. Mm. It might mean some missed opportunities. It most always will mean missing out on money, which can hurt the organization down the road. But relationships are not about transactions. Relationships are about building a base Mm. that can hold strong, even if you miss that money, even if you go a couple of weeks without being able to talk to people. I mean, in, in Washington, they used the hole for COVID isolation, right? So if mm-hmm. you got COVID, you went to the hole. Mm-hmm. You don't get out when you're in the hole on a regular basis, but especially if you have COVID. So what happens when the presidents of all of your collective groups and the folks that are the most active in communication are all in the hole with COVID? You have to just wait. For your illness to be met with torture. Yeah, yeah. 
I think we're still learning is the answer. I would say, I, I don't think we figured it out. I think we are doing our best to continue collective conversations, but again, people are exhausted. And so attendance at meetings slows down, communication slows down, people need some break and a breather, but unfortunately the carceral system doesn't really allow spaciousness for taking a break, right? They don't take a break in the abuse of our loved ones. So Mm. we have to just figure out how to do it. And every day, I think we learn something new and I don't, I don't have an answer in how to do it. I think the answer I thought I had was wrong. So I think the answer I have is I'm still learning. Yeah. I think that is the answer of like, how do you, for folks listening, right? Like that's so deconditioned out of us, especially in our schooling, right? Of like, there is a right and wrong answer. And the only way to move forward is another air quote with moving forward correctly. And I think just that grounding of the commitment of I'm here, I'm going to move, I'm going to practice, but also I'm practicing without the answers and like accepting that, not being disoriented with that. And like the humility of, we always start with this notion of time of like, I have to move through time in these liberated, accountable ways, I think is something that folks should receive and ground themselves in. On the ground here, what I'm hearing in this conversation is that there's been a real reckoning with speed and movement spaces. Um, You talk about funding, you talk about relationship building, you talk about the speed with which people take our money (laughs) when they capitalize on tragedy. I mean, I hope that part of what these conversations do for people is give us some spaciousness and thinking together and thinking across movement about how we can take control of the gas pedal, you know, once in a while. Cassandra, you just put it so well, you know, that, that they're not taking a break and that allows very very little space for us, us for rest, for reflection. But I've learned so much from the people that we listen to organizing inside about the, the attention and about the space that we need to give relationships and collective care for each other. You know, hopefully that's something that, that we can continue to learn. Um, we're running out of time, y'all. Oh. I got so many things written down that I want to ask you and we don't have to do it in this space, but I'm so glad to meet you all today. Do, do you have one that you want to prioritize that, you know, as, as we wind down? We've talked a little bit about the joy that's come out of these past couple of years, um, the utter exhaustion that's come out of these, these past few years. There's the reality that when you are in it together, these trials and tribulations can bring us closer and can increase solidarity. We have those opportunities. And we've heard a little bit about how you all have taken advantage of those opportunities. I'm wondering maybe if we can just talk a little bit about, you know, the hope that some of this relationship building and some of these lessons have brought out in your work going forward. Like what are the next things that you all extremely excited about coming out of not a post-COVID world, but coming out of a definite period, right? most excited about is just this continued journey of healing that I think was so long overdue and is now the focus. Um, I have been blessed with so many incredible additional relationships in my life, Um, like very close, I won't even say friends, I'll say family that I've gained in this fight, um, both inside and out. And so I'm just excited for us to continue to build relationship and to heal 
together so that we land together and we land, you know, holding space for each other and continuing in that way. Because the, the actual reality is this fight is lifelong. And if you don't have folks around you that are holding you in love, you just can't survive it. So check. Susan? Yeah, <laughs> go next. Um, I think like for me to stay hopeful is very project based. <laughs> I try to do the next project, next project. And for MPOP, now when I look forward, is we are doing worker retreats and we are um, inviting the 10 workers we already have a lot of relationship with and coming to talk about, you know, our dreams of having a worker center in Chinatown International District in Seattle and our not dream, a plan to do political education about racial and gender politics and working class organizing in the U.S. and in China with workers in next year. So, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to this conversation and looking forward to rolling out these projects. That's the thing that brings me hope and then sustain me in this work. That is the most organizer thing I've ever heard. My hope is projects. <laughs> but Shusha, I feel you so hard. <laughs> I guess I can go. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about hope. Sorry, I want to circle back to this the timing and speed stuff. And I think part of, you know, the slowing down and taking time is the recognition and holding of the ongoing presence of suffering. Wanting to eradicate suffering immediately is what gets us really reactive. And I want to honor that also as like a very human response, even if it might not be the most sustainable. And taking time also means we have to sit with that pain but these institutions are built over centuries and we need a lot more people, a lot more resources to be able to destroy them. But I think that vision, hope as like an anchor in the future, into the future and thinking of, you know, the small moments when we do have fun, when we do like love in a way that is pretty solid. I mean, just between Sushi and myself and Cassandra, we've been through so much really hard things in the last few years. and to just imagine if we didn't have the pressures of white supremacy and, you know, poverty and, you know, trauma and all that, like what kind of lives could we be living? Like it would be really different. And I think being able to imagine that with, especially the folks who are inside of like, yeah, if 90% of folks' energies are put into trying to survive in this really, really destructive system if all the energy is freed up like what could be possible and that imagination and that possibility I feel like is a way to to hope and a way to navigate what is hard in the present I have a follow-up I don't want to disrupt Eva's beautiful concluding question but I just had a, a reflection that I was going to say in our conclusion and I was like, no, I should ask you this instead of just like receiving it and try to analyze it myself. But one of the things I've been so intrigued by in this conversation and what, you know, the connection of discussing the solidarity between these communities allows from your stories and what you've told is so often when we have these conversations about violent racialized systems, the perpetrator, commissioner, survivor line gets very like binary of like, oh, our community is surviving racial violence or, oh, we are participating and like need to unlearn. But what I heard is like in 
particularly in, you know, the Asian American migrant context of like in protecting yourself from your racialized realities in this space. There was also so much challenge of like, you know, subverting the information that's being fed, subverting this model minority. And so the having to do the both and at the same time, I feel like to me has to offer like unique perspectives or, or dynamics to how all of us can learn how to like create a more healthy collective society. And so you spoke towards it or named it a little bit, but I just kind of want to, in conclusion of like, in addressing the the privileged relationship, but also the harmed relationship in this U.S. context, are there things that you want to, you don't want to be a spokesperson, but like things you can offer to other communities about how addressing racialization from two directions can help us move forward collectively? I know that was a lot, and that's like a middle of the conversation question. That's not a very good concluding question, but I don't. I didn't want to answer it myself, which was what I was about to do. So I wanted to give that to y'all if if you have anything to offer. I'll I'll try. Yeah, I feel like I'm trying to find the answer as I'm living my life. <laughs> so it's like I'm yeah. going, but True. I think I'm really grounded in the history of this man. I think that mm. is very important for me to not just like understand intellectually, but be in relationship to and be really humble about. And also I want to honor and have dignity around my ancestry and the journey of my people. And I think ideally it shouldn't be like at odds, right? We can have dignity about who we are and honor the structural position that we're in. But because the narratives are so dominant, it forces you one way or another. And I think for me, we need a different story. We need a global story. We need to find community that can sustain and feed into, acknowledge this, this other alternative narrative. And we need to put in action to make it not just a story or a narrative, but to see the solidarity in action. And a quote from Fanon, which I won't watch, but you know, we're not tied to the past. We create our history, we create our reality, which is not to say we're not shaped by the past and history has created the landscape we're in right now, but we do have the agency to have new openings to create our own legacy and community. But that was very emo, so. <laughs> no, that, no, that was poignant. <laughs> we call, yeah. Um, all right. I have like a million follow-ups that we could do, but I want to be respectful of y'all's time and just say thank you for, you know, for me, as I was sitting here, I found myself doing much more listening than talking, I think, in a lot of conversations because, again, it's just a space I'm not familiar with. And so hearing some of my assumptions be cracked through is something that I just really value and appreciate y'all's offering. So I just want to say thank you. I wanted to vocalize what our listeners can't see, which is what we're seeing now is, you know, we talked about hope. We talked about solidarity and it's been so fun to be with you on this call and see people laughing and see people smiling. And for me to hold great sadness as well. And in case any of our listeners, you know, you've missed every other episode and randomly got here with us today. One of our founders of One Million Experiments, Miriam Kaba, says that hope is a discipline. It's something that 
my Google alerts tell me that people use every single day. And I, I mean, that is what we're seeing in action today, Cassandra and JM and Shushan. It's beautiful to see you all building relationship together in this place. It's beautiful to see like what comes out of all of that intersectionality. And this is hope as a discipline. I know that behind everything that we've talked about today, there are countless meetings, spreadsheets, Google Calendar. I mean, you know, we are. This is this is a this is a hardcore organizing space today, and we appreciate you all. And I know it was a lot to ask. We all asked for a lot of your time today, and I'm just so grateful to meet you. And I'm saying this so that when I have a million follow up questions in the future about the amazing work you're doing, that hopefully you answer my email. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank Bye, you. y'all. That was an abundance of ideas. I'm overwhelmed. I need to process. Let's hop into peer review. Kiss, you're back with us. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're in full effect. We, we're switching it up. We're going to kick it to you first. Usually Eva comes in with the notes and with the homework and points out things that we missed or didn't fully emphasize in real time. First for you, how was it being on the other side and being the listener and coming to the peer review? And then what are you bringing to the space? Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Yeah, definitely had some moments of like the, oh shit, I got to do my homework. Like, let me let me make sure I'm prepared and I like have notes and all that stuff in a way that I don't usually. So Eva, shout out to you for doing that through the first eight episodes. It's like a lot of very intentional listening. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting conversation that could pull us in a lot of different directions. So just a couple things that jumped out to me. There was just as one sentence, this idea of attention as the beginning of devotion and devotion as an important part of care. So whether that's on a personal level, whether that's, you know, in these forms of body care as healthcare and community care, or whether it's on the political level, the act of paying attention is what leads people to be devoted to trying to make people's lives better. Um, I thought that was really beautiful. And I thought, I, I can't remember if it was JM or Cassandra who got into it at the end, but this idea of the willingness to take the time to really sit with the reality of suffering which I think, you know, as people who do this work, it's always kind of this battle of like, how can I be okay and not looking away from the world? Like, how do I look into the eye of the storm and still keep moving and not be devastated by it? And so often what that ends up looking like, and this is part of what was talked about, was like urgency of like, we need to address this now because we can see how bad it is or how harmful it is or how much people are suffering. And that's important. It can be like a really good motivator. But I thought that the emphasis on how important it is to sit with the suffering, process it a little bit and not just jump into action all the time seemed like a really good lesson, like obviously both in in these contexts of incarceration and uh, the harms visited on body workers and sex workers, but also just for for so many of the experiments. When you're facing these types of beasts, you got to give yourself some time to breathe a little too. What about y'all? One, those are, I think, some really profound takeaways. I'm just really moved by the amount of new communal compositions that we were able to address in this episode to be able to center migrant justice and experiences uh, from a different context than we usually do here in the U.S., uh, which usually gets like very focused on the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, in many ways for good reason. Uh, but again, just to the the notion like spatially, the Pacific Northwest is something that like stretches my imagination and is not something I think about often. And in addition to that, you know, learning more about 
just the complexity of the social cultural position of Asian American and Asian and Pacific Islander migrants, you know, and workers um, that I have not practiced in my discourse or in my language of how to get into the specificities of that experience. And then for that to intersect with sex work and then for that to then also intersect uh, with direct advocacy of people inside and talking about the conditions in prisons, like the, the, the fact that we were able to go eight or so episodes and this is the first time we get to some of these dynamics and to put them all together, just always kind of popped the bubble that we, that I created my head. And so many of us. <laughs> oh, folks, I'm back. <laughs> Rested and but, ready. But no, no matter how expansive we think our views or, or consciousness or perspective is, right, like there still are these bubbles or these borders of things we're not seeing. And so I just feel provoked by that of like, there's still so much exploration for me to do in terms of the communal landscape of just our land and our world, but particularly like the movement and resistance landscape. And so just excited to have made that connection. I'm having such a like proud Papa moment right now. You know, Kiss left us in the lab. We made a whole big mess. Like we went crazy. We put in two experiments because we're like, we got to get to a million. Let's go. But um, like it was bubbling over. (laughs) But now that you put it that way, Damon, it really illuminates in so many ways what One Million Experiments is trying to do in terms of being a space where there is cross movement thought where there is cross-movement lab work, where there's cross-movement communication. And I think that this episode, you know, as, as a jumble of experiments, you know, if you will, like really works out as a lesson too, because it shows that those people like JM, who are connectors in our spaces, who are the people who go out to answer every call from every movement, who know what's happening on the ground, who have their finger on the pulse. Um, Ergo does that for Chicago, P.S. Um you know, those people are really, really important parts of this because, you know, we've all been in a meeting where you have this idea or a need or, you know, something happens and you realize somebody else in that group knows somebody who's doing it. They know somebody who has a history behind that. They know somebody who could help you with that. It just goes to show how important it is in all of our vibrant spaces and all of our cities, how taking that time to slow down, to care for each other and to meet with each other and see what other people are up to who, you know, share our goals, who share our views, who share our spaces is so important. You know, and one of the things that JM referenced and for posterity's sake, I'll, I'll bring this up. We talk about the massage worker shootings in this podcast, and we're referencing the 2021 Atlanta spa shootings. That was March 16th, 2021, when there was a shooting spree in three spas in Atlanta, Georgia, and eight people were killed. um, And six of those people were women who were of Asian descent. You know, we didn't go into this too deeply because we, you know, (laughs) we talked for a long time. Kiss is a great editor, but. JM, you know, was talking a little bit about bringing to the space how there were those moments in organizing in 2021 when there was such a national spotlight on, in the media was Asian hate crimes. Um, And there were so many amazing people like MPOP and like JM and people who were coming to the forefront to get people straight on those terms, that a lot of communities were not calling these hate crimes, that a lot of communities were not calling for more police in their spaces, you know, all the things that MPOP is really trying to do and, and stands for. It was a really important lesson to see, you know, how when there are flashpoints that, you know, when you're able to mobilize quickly across 
movement that you can really take advantage and take control of shifts in narrative. And I think that, you know, if you go back and look at the articles that Shushan and Jam wrote during this time, it's a really valuable lesson for us about how we can take advantage of that solidarity across groups and how we can use these moments where, you know, outside groups, national groups, like people fly in and pick up all the money and pick up all the airtime when, you know, your group has been in solidarity on this issue on the ground for a long time and can really mobilize community towards collective care, how you can take advantage of those flashpoints together. In that dynamic of like the responsibility in response times balanced up against the point that the Daniel brought up earlier of like, how do we also take time to process suffering? And I think like this is a, a longer term challenge or contradiction that folks should be either reflecting on or how that shaped their experience or processing and and analyzing if they plan to go further in this work of like they are going to be horrible things oftentimes there will be these moments or these these clicks in consciousness where something horrible spreads through information channels and you know changes the political landscape changes the social discourse and so there's this push and pull of well we have to do something now but then also how do we keep a long term like human pace in our structure, in our relationships, in our connections, have time to recharge because like you're saying, those moments can like overload or overwhelm and sometimes not just absorb resources and support, but also absorb a lot of contention and discord that then the folks who we need the most to be, you know, resourced are then having to hold and deal with. Yeah, I think on some level it becomes to me a question of like, who are you talking toward? In some of these moments, there ends up being so much effort to try to like dispel the framing or the narrative from corporate media or from politicians. And I think that was definitely the case I'm thinking about around defund and, of course, around stop Asian hate as a hashtag. And I think just like everything else we always talk about, it's a balance and a contradiction of like that works incredibly important. And when it becomes a battle around language as opposed to a like movement to provide support and care and political framework to the people affected, it ends up pulling so much of the attention and the energy away from the work that actually was happening before this flashpoint. The battle over like semantics and framing with bad faith participants takes so much energy and time away from the work and the experimentation that we actually need. And I don't want to downplay these points that people jump in the water. You get a flood of emails in your inbox, organizers. I know you're out there where everyone's like, I'm ready to volunteer. And that is a beautiful thing. You know, I don't want to take away from that. Um, season two will be on onboarding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but to like circle way back to the beginning of the podcast, when we were just talking about, you know, and the end, when we we're talking about what sustains these groups and what gives us hope. I mean, it came back to feeding each other. It came back to time and care for each other. We have to have campaigns. We have to have emergency protests. We have to have all the tools in our toolbox that we can employ. And when we have a solid grounding of relationship to call people into, our spaces last longer. Before we get out of here, any last things that jumped out from the convo? Yeah. Again, I'm... I'm- really grateful to you, Eva, for bringing in this community and allowing for conversations that we don't have all the time and that we're new to this space. Because I'm thinking about the importance of what they were naming of like having to address a multi-directional shape of oppression, right? So like 
as migrants, as folks that experience discrimination and marginalization and language barrier and citizenship and like all those things that inform their liberation, how oppression is shaping their community and harming their community, but also how in addressing that it is forcing to work through how oppression can be perpetuated through marginalized communities. And so the conversation around anti-Blackness and how the, the organizing sees that and has to address it was really informative for me because, you know, they're not dynamics that I'm unaware of, of like part of what integration or inclusion into the U.S. nation state project is, is built on like adopting, you know, anti-Blackness. But hearing how the information channels in real time are like activating and teaching that especially with there being like a language barrier, that that's something that is, it's not like historical or just like passed down through generation, that there's like an active project of expanding anti-Blackness and how through their coalition and through their work and in talking about, you know, the common experiences around state violence, like having to address bigotry, address human division from multiple positions, which I think is actually the experience of most people in our listeners, right? Like it's usually just from like, the oppressed resisting their oppression, right? Uh, but most folks, right, like Black men and how we participate in patriarchy, you know, I'm sure the, the the bevy of white folks that love and listen to our show, right, who are committed to, you know, their own liberation, but then also have to, you know, be in contestation with their community around how perpetuating bigotry is harmful. Um, yeah, so just the both and of that was really striking, really moving, and to hear about it in real time expanded kind of my understanding of what's going on out here. Yeah, and I think you're right that it's true for most people. Yeah, it's multidirectional more times than not. The only thing I have to add, and you're going to be so mad at me because that was such a beautiful sentiment, is I have to make fun of how many times Damon used air quotes in that episode. <laughs> oh, I yeah. cut a couple oh, of yeah. them, but it, it got <laughs> yeah, extreme. Was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was weird for me too. I don't know what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. Uh, the, the quotes were thrown. The air quotes yeah, yeah, were yeah. thrown hard. <laughs> it got intense. I was, I was worn out by <laughs> my like knuckles needed, needed to develop arthritis from your air quotes. <laughs> All right. I think speaking of urgency, I'm urgently needing to to wrap this up so that we can move on with our day. We're recording on Labor Day, which is fucked up that we're making each other work on Labor Day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what that means is that we want to hear from y'all listeners. This is your opportunity to participate in this peer review. What jumped out from the conversation? How is it resonating with your work? Let us know on socials, by email. Eva, how can folks get in touch with the 1ME team and interrupting criminalization overall? You can always find us at millionexperiments.com. Um, and you can find Interrupting Criminalization on all of your socials at Interrupt Crim. Even TikTok soon, I think. Oh, but my God. Don't quote me on that. I know. I know. Well, oh, later. Um, if you want to reach out to the group's Massage Parlor Outreach Project or MPOP is at mpopseba.org. You can find Free Them All Washington at Free Them All WA on Instagram and Facebook and the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Awareness Group or APICAG is on Instagram at APICAG underscore. And if you Google them, you can also get to their Facebook page. 
Before we give our tags, Eva, I just want to commend you. I've seen you battling your mid-Atlantic accent through this entire conversation. The Washingtons <laughs> popped out a couple times. Are you going to let me say it once? Yeah, let it out. Let it out. <laughs> live, right. live your truth. I'm from just outside of Washington, D.C. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Wow. What a, that's refreshing. You know, good to see you, you know, really living your truth. <laughs> We're at Ergo Radio. Of course, make sure that you subscribe to One Million Experiments. Share with a friend, with a comrade, with a family member, somebody you love. Uh, you can also follow our other show, Ergo. Uh, just type in A-I-R-G-O on your podcast app or at Ergo Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next episode is going to be the final episode of season one. Until then, thanks for hopping in the lab with us. Much love to the people. Peace.